Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another installment of Innovation Crush. It's me, Chris Denson. Yeah. 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 All right. Um, thank you, guys. Sit down. <laughs> uh, in case you guys are tuning in to the show for the first time ever, this show covers all things innovation, ideas, creativity, how those things feed into one another. And uh, I'm going to keep eating because today I'm joined by Jan. No, just kidding. John, <laughs> John Lee. Johan. Johan yeah. Leviticus. Yes. That's, that's, that should be your club name. My club name? Yeah, Johan Leviticus. That's not my uh, my porn star name? Or or that. I, yes. I don't know what kind of porn that is, though. I, uh, it's uh, Amish porn. It's, <laughs> oh. it's only the best. <laughs> only the best. It's a flip book that they drew. It's, since they can't <laughs> use electricity, figures. yes. Um, uh, that's disturbing. <laughs> so um, let's start with this. How about you give me the 101 on who John Levy is? Uh, well, I'm a... Behavioral scientist, but probably what I'm best known for is, uh, since there's a lot of people way smarter than me that have done incredible research, I focus on how to use research that's out there to actually make people's lives better uh, or businesses more effective. Uh, and I specifically focus on, uh, most of the time on connection. How do people connect more effectively or how do brands connect with their key customers or influential people so that the brand can or company can become really successful. So really, you're like a, you're an intermediary of sorts uh, yeah. between the research and between the practical application of it. Because I think those, in, in many cases, those two languages are different. Oh, yeah. So the skill set necessary to uh, do really great research isn't always the skill set necessary to communicate it or even uh, the skill set necessary to uh, apply it so that people can use it in everyday life. And what I really care about is that our lives improve and that these incredible researchers get credit and, uh, and their ideas are shared. Yeah. And, and it's funny. I mean, just, I guess, from a learning perspective, I think a lot of businesses and entrepreneurs have that same issue, right? I've created a product. Mm -hmm. I don't know how best to communicate it, right? The value, especially if yeah. it's new and it's inventive, but it's, it's probably rooted in some insights. Um, is that the direction your work flows in or is that something you get, you consider along the way? Uh, I think a lot about that kind of stuff. So I'll give you a simple example. Um, one of the big problems brands face or entrepreneurs face is that... Uh, they really don't communicate the story of their product very well. And uh, they think, okay, if I post something online, people will share it. But it ignores the fact that we share things because they're fundamentally remarkable. They are worth remarking about. From an anthropological perspective, uh, our species evolved with an oral history, right? We uh, shared ideas that allowed us to survive. And if it wasn't worth talking about, it wasn't culturally significant. Uh, and we know what really causes people to share things. But as business uh, people, we often completely ignore that. I'll give you an example. A few years back, this guy, George Lowenstein, uh, developed a theory called information gap theory. And the idea was, what creates curiosity? What will get you thinking about a person, a product, a brand, mm -hmm. an idea, and obsessing over it? And Because we always view curiosity as this, like, can, uh, this wonderful thing. But when you really think about it, it's kind of like an itch you can't scratch and it really annoys you. Like you see a BuzzFeed article and that says the, you know, 
21 things you could do with a banana and number eight will blow your mind. Like, do you really and you click through the, all the 15 uh-huh. click, but you're like, I knew that one, but then yes. And, and then you end up seeing it and you're like, that really wasn't worth it. Uh, but you literally can't help yourself because it's like this itch. You got to scratch. And so Lowenstein says, uh, well, what if curiosity is really just a gap in your knowledge? A gap between what you know and what you're being presented with. If it's too big, if it's completely foreign to you, uh, then it scares you, right? So like if I start talking about theoretical astrophysics, you'll get bored and want to leave the conversation. If it's too small, it's uninteresting. So I mentioned my middle name to you. You're like, okay, great. And you move on. But if it's just the right size, then people feel that they can span the gap and that they're curious. So it's this ideal sweet spot. Now, how often do we use curiosity to actually draw people in? Do we create open-ended questions or ideas that cause them to want to engage with our products or ideas? And so a little simple example, uh, when I meet people, so ask me where I'm from. Hey, John, where are you from? I'm actually from a small island in the northeast of the U.S. Now, Mm -hmm. I've created an information gap. Now you're kind of curious well, what kind of, like, which island is he from? Uh, and the answer is Manhattan, hmm. right? So it's like a cute little clever thing. Otherwise, I would have been like, oh, yeah. oh, he's from New York. Right. But now I've already set the context that this is going to be a different type of conversation. And people can do that with their products. Rather than giving all the information away, they can ask questions or create gaps that actually draw people in. Create Minding the gap, if you will. Yeah. Um, you are obviously curious about your craft, yes, <laughs> right? So, so it's kind of like meta. Where did your curiosity about this come from? Um, I think a large portion of it is that I grew up incredibly unpopular and very geeky. And I thought maybe if I could understand people, I could get some friends. <laughs> um, and uh, since I didn't go into engineering or artificial intelligence and actually make friends, uh, then I figured if I could understand people. Um, so has it worked? Um, I'm surrounded by a lot of people. I hope they consider me my you, you strike me as the kind of guy, just in the brief conversation we had before we started recording, you're thinking about what people are thinking about as you're engaging with them. Is that true? Uh, some of the time. So the, for sure. So the, the big issue is that um, I'm often thinking about what would make a really interesting conversation or what would be really uh, amazing to engage a person around. The people always say, oh, as a behavioral scientist, are you constantly analyzing people? And the problem is I can't be in the conversation with somebody and analyzing them at the same time. Right. Also, it doesn't really work on an individual basis, right? Like behavioral science says like, okay, out of 10,000 people, you know, uh, 8,000 of them will behave like this. It doesn't say like, okay, uh, Susan is, is standing there. What can you tell me about her? I'm like, I don't know. Just, <laughs> her name is Susan. That's right, what I right, can right. tell you about her. But I, I, I think in some cases when we are engaged in conversation, I think this also speaks to a lo- another part of your work, um, just bringing people together for this sake of dialogue and evolution. I'll, I'll, I'll summarize it th- that way. But there's a difference between being in flow in a conversation and just like, you're, and 
am what I, is, is what I'm saying resonating with you and why? Like you gave the example earlier, we were talking about biases mm-hmm. um, and there were certain triggers or the, you know, I'm from an island, right? There's yeah. these things where you want, maybe I want to deliberately leave a gap. And yes. am I thinking about that in order to better engage or is it just something that becomes natural? It's a, I don't know if there's a question there, but there's a lot. There's a to lot. Unpack. So uh, I think that we, especially as we're, we develop into our teens and so on, we develop our social skills and we experiment with different things and see what get responses, right? So if you're very attractive, it might be easier to lead with looks. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Thank uh, no, I said yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh. Right. Um, Damn it. That's so awkward. <laughs> uh, but, uh, and then you, ex- some people experiment with being funny and so on. And so you develop certain skill sets and you see what works. Um, I think that I probably personally spent more time in that experimental stage than most people that uh, I actively looked at, okay, what would happen if I come into this conversation and say this? Or uh, what if I walked up to the stranger and introduced myself? And so I, I developed very kind of like methodical approaches for how I, I try to help people feel comfortable or show them that I'm not after something from them, but I just want to have a conversation. I'll give you a simple example. Uh, I was at the Emmys last night and I was with my friend and she was seeing all these stars that she's a huge fan of. And so Benedict Cumberbatch and, uh, and Donald Glover and so on. And she would walk up to one and say, oh my God, I'm a huge fan of yours. I absolutely love your work. And, uh, I, and then would ask for a photo. And I said, you know what? Let's pause here for a second. Uh, can, <laughs> can I give you some advice? And she's yeah. like, yeah. Uh, and I say, here's the problem. The moment you walk up to somebody and you tell them that you're a fan, it creates a distance. At that point, you've put them on a pedestal and they have to act the way that somebody deserving of a fan acts. The funny thing is that she is one of the most successful producers of Indian films of the past 10 years. So has produced some of the top grossing films, films that Benedict Cumberbatch wishes, wishes, that many people saw, right? Because the Indian film market is just sure. a, yeah. a whole different level. I mean, literally, uh, her best friend or one of them is uh, Shah Rukh Khan, who's the biggest celebrity in the world. And so I say, said, here's the deal. If you walk up to somebody and say, hey, I really respect your work. I produce some of the biggest films uh, in India over the past 10 years. I've seen you and I'm very impressed with your performance. I just wanted to say congratulations and... Uh, really amazing job. It fundamentally shifts the nature of the conversation. She's been able to drop the fact that she has status and an understanding of the industry and shown respect to somebody. So at this point, it's game recognizing game. Right. As opposed to fanning out. Yeah. Now, there's nothing wrong with either. But in the second scenario, she can now come back a year later and say, oh, uh, at next year's Emmys and be like, oh, it's so good to see you again. Congratulations. As a reminder, and they'll be like, oh my God, yes, of course. Right. And and it changes the dynamic completely. That's interesting. You know, I think that makes me think of the things that we want, whether we're a business and we want to grow our consumer base. It's this idea of desire versus disconnect, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. Like I want that or I want to be associated with, but yeah. at the same time, that feels like a, an unachievable goal in some way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. Um, are there other mechanics, you know, I get it in the sense of conversation and 
pure pureness mm-hmm. pureness was that was sure it? purity pure ability <laughs> yeah. um if i say it with the british accent it sounds accurate yes which i can't do so and not, I'm not back to dumb. yes um <laughs> the name of my second book is back to dumb we're just a bunch of idiots. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, like, what are some of those other principles for, you know, bridging the gap and not making things feel okay. as insurmountable as they might sometimes seem? So I think the the first thing is, um, as a, a business owner, there's a lot of pressure to constantly just be a unicorn and grow super fast. And if you actually look at success, it's it's much slower for most people. It's a... And, and that's actually really fine because as long as you have enough money that you're eating, uh, we're happiest when we are experiencing, when we're fully engaged in what we do and experiencing growth, right? So if I grow by a factor of 10, is that great? Yes, but it, not 10 times happier than if I grow by a factor of two or one and a half, as long as there's this feeling of progress and growth, right? We're happiest or most engaged when we're doing something just outside of our skill set. And as entrepreneurs, we're often doing things completely outside of our skill set. Uh, but so it's important to just cut ourselves some slack and understand that life doesn't actually get better when the company does 10 times better. Um, and it's just key to keep engaging and growing and growing and growing. You'll be much happier. In fact, there's this interesting thing that happens that if you get a super successful company three years in and you sell it, uh, people are kind of lost and don't really know what to do with themselves. Life doesn't really get better. Yeah. Uh, so there's a, an element of that. And then the, the second thing is that anything we want to achieve is a byproduct, at least in my opinion, of who we're connected to and how much they trust us in that capacity. That means that we really just need to be experts at two things. One is figuring out how to connect with the right people. And when I say right people, I mean the people that can have an impact on what you care about. And the second is how do you build trust quickly? And so trust has this really kind of funny thing. Uh, have you ever heard of the Ben Franklin effect? No. Okay. So Ben Franklin uh, had this contentious political rival. He was, uh, I think, he was, Franklin wanted to be the secretary for like something in, in Pennsylvania. And uh, this this very wealthy businessman uh, essentially was trying to back a different candidate. And Franklin did not want to try to win this guy over by being nice. So what he did was he asked the man if he if he could borrow a really rare book from the guy's book collection, which required the man to find it, go out of his way to bring it to Franklin, and um, then eventually Franklin returned it. But what happened was that they became friends for years after, until the man's passing. And that's because when you get somebody, when if I do something nice for you, you may or may not appreciate it, right? If I give you, you're an iPhone user, if I give you a Samsung phone, you may or may not. Right. It. But if I get you to do something for me, then you've invested into our relationship and then you care more. It's also called the Ikea effect. We disproportionately like our Ikea furniture because we had to assemble it. Right. So the issue is that most people try to win over influential people by uh, doing really nice things or lavish dinners or all these kinds of things. But the fact of the matter is that if you actually want to create a meaningful connection, find a way for both of you to put effort into something together. So instead of a client dinner, see if you can work out together or work on an art project or do volunteer work or anything that you both put in effort into something that's meaningful. That's great. Preferably on brand. So that's kind of a shortcut to 
trust. Otherwise, the faster ways to trust are uh, having a really uh, meaningful uh, point of common ground, right? So if two people are from the same church or went to the same college, that's nice. An even more meaningful one is if there's a common point of trust that's a person that could vouch for both. So it's word of mouth. With your, with that being said, and a lot of your work being so, it's all focused on human connection. Like I yeah. think at the end of the day, like forget the business tactics and mm -hmm. EBITDA and like all the, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. All, all those things. It's really like, and that's, I think that's at the root of everything. Everything we do should be serving a person. I think we all like in business, we always forget like, oh, there's a, a consumer at the yeah. end of this funnel, right? And that need, that has pain points and emotions and so on and so mm -hmm. forth. Um, this has come to life in the series of influencers dinner. And I think even some of your behavioral science magic, I'll call it, um, you know, kind of flips the model of what a networking dinner is on its head. And I don't know how much of that you can share. Like I can share all of yeah, it. Yeah, just so, uh, first of all, one of the interesting things is that if you actually look, uh, there's a book called Friend of a Friend, uh, which really explores the research in science. Uh, Friend of a Friend with Benefits? I, or, I, I wish. That'd be, that, yeah. be, I'd love to learn that. <laughs> well, at least back in my single days. So, um, the uh, the book looks at all the research around networking. And one of the things that it really points out is that when you ask people about networking, they feel dirty, just the word itself. Because it, it emphasizes this concept of transactionality, that uh, I'm going, hoping to connect with somebody for personal gain. And as human beings, that's not really... Like we didn't evolve in that environment. I mean, to the best of my knowledge, we involved in small communities where everybody knew each other and we were interdependent for our survival. Like the whole thing of a stranger was very rare, which means that, uh, that nobody really wants to network. What they want is to have relationships. And so you have to recontextualize it. And there's actually some really fun research about this, which is if you... Um, there are these two researchers, Nicholas Christakis and James Fowler. They were curious about the obesity epidemic. They ran a crazy study. They asked, is obesity spread from person to person like a cold? Or is it a percentage of the population? Like, you know, Alzheimer's or something. Sure. You don't get Alzheimer's because you shake somebody's hand who has Alzheimer's. And what they found was startling. If you have a friend who's obese, your probability of obesity increases by 45%. Your friends who don't know them, 20% increase. And their friends, 5%. Meaning that obesity and happiness, marriage, divorce rates, any social behavior really is contagious. Which means that you have to be really careful about who you, uh, who you curate around you. Sure. Um, and there's two elements to this. A traditional networker knows a lot of people, right? So you, let's say you're really successful. I meet you. I, because you're in my community or network, I have a increased chance of being successful now. And, and that's great, but, if, but it's very limited view. It's like being the spoke of a wheel. If a strength of a network is measured by the connections between the networks, uh, and so if I introduce you to extraordinary people that are in my life, then each of you gains from that, right? So they, they have a higher chance of being successful. Let's Absolutely. say they're an athlete. You have a higher chance of being really fit. And so the network in total becomes more uh, successful, happy, effective, and so on. And that's a much more powerful place to be because the more that you are successful, ha happy, and healthy, the more I'm going to be happy, healthy, and successful. So when I look at 
forget networking. I look at it as community building. Sure. How can I bring together extraordinary people so they impact each other and me? And I'm going to just naturally become more successful and happy the more extraordinary people that I bring together. And so um, even under that umbrella, the notes like when I walked in and thank you for inviting oh, me. To so I, let's let's uh, maybe uh, just give a quick description of what you were invited to. Yeah, yeah no, uh, and well, you, you can. And one of the things I like, and you can touch on this, mm-hmm. is removing some of the constructs that we are typically used to or just habitually used to mm-hmm. doing when we walk into a room full of strangers. Yeah. So uh, about ten years ago, I uh, got really interested and curious what causes the most influential people in our culture to connect or engage. And uh, so I, I started modeling their behavior and finding patterns and so on. And from all that research, I created a secret dining experience called the Influencers Dinner. So 12 people are invited. They're not allowed to talk about what they do or give their last name. They cook dinner together. And when they sit down to eat, everybody gets to guess what everybody else does. And they find out that it's the president of MTV, the editor-in-chief of L, a two-time Olympic gold medalist, a, a popular television personality. And uh, I've hosted over 1,500 people across over 160 dinners in nine cities in three countries. Awesome. And, uh, and it's crazy because I'm a behavioral scientist, but I got to go to the Emmys yesterday. And that's not predictable. And it's just because really amazing people keep cooking me dinner. Uh, and I, <laughs> I, like that's complete insanity. I never thought that it would get to this level. The entire dinner is based built on like specialized uh, or applied science. So uh, you can't talk about work because I wanted to um, get people outside, just like you said, of their standard operating procedure. I didn't want there to be a contest of status because I didn't want the president of this to be competing with the CEO of that. Because none of that matters. I wanted people to connect on a human level. And and what are some of the results of your ongoing experiments? <laughs> uh, so this is, I, I wouldn't call it... Aside the, from your Emmy's uh, uh, invitation. <laughs> uh, so I I will say, I, it's hard for me to, to explain what it's been for other people. I know some people have started dating, companies have formed, you know, investments. Missed, I think it's in the range of the millions of dollars have occurred uh, into different projects. Um, and so... It's been huge, but people tend not to report back very much uh, because they, they, I think they just assume I know somehow. I, <laughs> I don't know. I can tell you, I, um, so I, I always wanted to write a book. And the way I ended up getting a book deal was I invited the agents that I most wanted to dinners and uh, became friends with them. And they heard about it. And one of them was like, I want to rep this. And I got a book deal. And then I, I, uh, among the people I've had the pleasure of hosting over the years was uh, one of them is Michael Ardent, who won the Academy Award for Little Miss Sunshine, and he wrote Star Wars: The Force Awakens, and worked on the Hunger Games, and uh, he also he's done a ton of like super famous films, and uh, and another guy is Mark Goffman, who uh, helped create Bull. Uh, he was a showrunner of Limitless and like sure. a bunch of super posi- uh, uh, popular shows. Uh, Sleepy Hollow. And so I sent them copies of my book after they came to the dinner. And I was like, I'd love your opinion on what to do with this. I was thinking of either converting into a film or a a, a TV show. Michael read the book and then sat down with me for two hours storyboarding the entire movie and how he would, if he were to convert the book into a movie, lay it out. 
then uh, that's crazy. I mean, like the yeah. guy's time is worth a fortune and he's the nicest sure. guy in, in the world. I mean, that's also an testament to how well you wrote the book. Are we talking about the 2 a.m. principle, yeah, by yeah. the way? Yeah. Um, and then but what was even crazier was Mark read it over and he gave me some advice. And then he's like, you know what, John? I actually want this to be my next project. So now it looks like it's uh, with his, since he's writing it, and we have uh, the producer from Two and a Half Men on it. Uh, <laughs> like, I have no right to be in the television industry. I don't know anything about it. I don't even own cable. Like, a, I don't have cable. But it uh, literally boils down to who you can connect with, how much trust you can build. Yeah. And, uh, and so I, I like to say I have a really wonderful life because, like I said, people keep cooking me dinner. <laughs> uh, it's all, well, we'll get into that later. Um, I, I made up a phrase, mm-hmm. which may or may not mean anything, but I would like for you to expand on it. Sure. You ready for this ridiculousness? I can't wait. Uh, planned serendipity. Yes. So I, I think that that's very accurate, which is that if you put yourself in enough scenarios, uh, the then something magical is going to happen like with uh if you really put all the odds in your favor right you bring the right people into play uh you create an environment where they can connect and talk and explore ideas something's going to come up that's completely unexpected i mean i've had at dinners that uh i had a dinner where two so the dinner's going on everybody's guessing and uh i have a neuroscientist moran surf uh, who you Love posted, yes. uh, turns to the man next to him and says, there's no way you'll remember this, but uh, 10 years ago, I emailed you asking what I should do with my career. And you told me to go into research. And I want you to know I've been published in Nature and all these magazines. Uh, you really inspired me. And you're one of my heroes. Thank you so much. And it was Nobel laureate Dan Kahneman. <laughs> what? And, and then across the table, two people are sitting uh, and a woman says, um, I want you to know that you have no way of knowing this, but I grew up watching you and you inspired me to go into the sciences. And the person was Bill Nye, the science guy. And she became, she was a MIT Media Lab alum and as a robotics company, and she's a superstar. But there's no way I can plan that, right? right? But I can put all the right elements in place so that the odds are in, in favor. And that kind of stuff happens every third or fourth dinner. That's like stuff that you would never expect. I, can I tell us? Please. Like one of my, my, I'm getting goosebumps um, because when I walked into the dinner a couple of months ago, first in, uh, time doing that with you guys, uh, I see Louis Anderson. Yes. Now, I, I, my whole career is rooted in stand-up comedy. Like I, that was my first like passion thing that I experienced from you know from the time I was like a 10-year-old kid to starting to do stand-up in college. Mm-hmm. Um, so that like 80s, early 90s, you know, era of stand-up, like uh-huh. Louis is that epitome of it for me. Amazing. And we're just sitting in conversation and the best thing happened to me because I was, you know, I was being my normal self. Um, and uh, there was another gentleman there who's of note, but he goes like, man, you are funny. <laughs> and, he's, and then he goes, John, isn't he funny? And we like it was. I was like, okay, I could probably die tonight and be. Was it John cool. Singleton? It was John Singleton. Yeah. And so, like, I'm, you know, me, John Singleton, and Louis, it's, like, it's just the trifecta of everything I grew up with, right? Yep. And so, um, but have maintained 
dialogue with with both of them. So it's, they are the nicest guys. Oh my gosh, so much. Um, and let alone the, I mean, the other people that were there were amazing. But again, and and it it has in many cases turned into business development. So yeah. I think, you know, like you said, sort of re- like leveling the playing field just from uh, the things that normally would come out of your mouth mm-hmm. that you are not allowed to do. And I think I, I'm curious if this translates into business as well, because I, I like to enter a room whether I'm pitching or going into a meeting. And saying the un or doing the uncommon thing, yeah. Um, so, and I don't know if that's right or wrong in your practice, but like, where does that the things that come up is from a behavioral standpoint in the dinners can be leveraged in in uh, business? So here here's the interesting thing. Uh, what I've become very clear on is that networking events are not a very good use of time. Uh, they're not going to really provide you with the people that you you want to connect with for the most part. Um, And so, and they also tend to really focus on making life easier for extroverts, which is only half the population. Uh, So you're going to end up generally seeing these super extroverted people jumping around from group to group. And let's be honest, that skill set's great, but it's not something that everybody needs or has. And not only that, they can be off-putting. So yeah. the minute somebody jumps in your face, like, what do you do? Where are you from? Like, I'm yeah. just like, eh. If, like, <laughs> if, especially if you're introverted, you yeah. don't. Uh, I had the pleasure of yesterday meeting Mandy Potemkin. Uh, and he said, asked me, do you think I'm an introvert or an extrovert? And I'm like, I have no idea. And he says, everybody expects me to be an extrovert because I'm a performer. Uh, but I'm really introverted. And in fact, uh, when I go on long car rides with my wife when we're driving, uh, I could sit in silence for eight hours. And she's an insanely extroverted person. So she puts on headphones and listens to podcasts. But like, I'm in bliss when it's absolutely quiet. And we don't give enough credit for that here in the West. In the East, Eastern cultures tend to really respect silence and wisdom associated with it. Uh, So I think that the key here or the big takeaway is how do you create uh, a sense of intimacy and trust that works with your personality, right? So if you're, you have a big personality, so be it. Like there's, I'm not here to judge, right? Look at a um, Gary Vaynerchuk, mm-hmm. super big personality, really smart. Like he uses that to his advantage. That's his brand. Go for it. Him acting like a, some quiet guy wouldn't work for him. Sure. Uh, but it also means that if you're not, and that's not your personality, trying to mimic that won't make you successful. It'll make you miserable. And so if you're, uh, when I first started the dinners, I had no idea what I was doing. The guest list wasn't John Singleton and Louis CK, uh, not Louis CK, sorry, uh, Louis Anderson. Uh, definitely wasn't Louis. It definitely wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but this sauce tastes funny. All right. Too, that was too low, bro. I'm sorry. Go ahead. So, uh, the, uh, it wasn't that. It took a while for the status of the experience to build and build and build, which means that you can, if you're listening to this and you say, okay, I, I have a company, I want to really bring in influential people, either for business or whatever it is, you can start off simple. Create a, a game night, like a board game night with your friends. And then once you have like a system down, start inviting outsiders. Start inviting potential business clients. Start inviting... Uh, um, media people, whatever it is. And over time, you'll develop status. It took from the first dinner to the second dinner, it took six months, then four months. Now I do four a month, sometimes five. 
And it's amazing, but it's because I have a staff of people who do it for me, right? I can't, I couldn't both manage a full-time job of, or multiple full-time jobs I, I have and also do all the scheduling and everything. I've built up a team over the course of 10 years. And so, uh, and you don't even have to do anything as complex as a game night. There was a, a woman who attended, I also run a salon series. We have 60 to 100 people come. They can't talk about work. And then uh, we surprise them after an hour of cocktails with three famous speakers. So it might be Bill Nye. It might be, we had, uh, oh, we had the deputy chief of uh, the CIA for, uh, <laughs> for awesome. LA, uh, had just retired. So he came out to everybody and told everybody what he does and shared a bit about uh, his life in the CIA. He didn't reveal anything confidential, but it was just fascinating because when his last you time- You put together he, every third letter yes. of his talk. There's a message in there. Yes. Uh, it was all encrypted. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, um, so it, it, you, the, the format, is, what's important is that it's yours, that other people, like you aren't just copying somebody else's thing. So a woman came to one of these uh, events of mine. She was inspired, I guess. And she said, uh, John, I created something I'm really proud of. I created a wine and cheese event where like once a month or something, everybody comes to my home, 12 people or something like that. And each person has to bring a three-minute story around a word that I select. So it could be hope. And each person brings a three-minute story and the stories are totally varied and they all tell it. What you know about people is their story. And right. it's, it's pretty awesome. Like she doesn't have the anonymity thing because that's my thing. But right. she, she has like her own format and it's delightful, but it's not complicated. It's also not expensive, right? People bring wine, people, she has some cheese. So it costs her what? 50 bucks. Yeah. And it's a, it becomes extraordinary over time. Uh, you seem rather big-hearted um, and an open kind of guy. And obviously you deal with people and human humans uh, mm -hmm. on, a, on a daily basis. What frustrates you most about people? Like, what's the one thing that you like? Uh, so there's this uh, bias we call the Semmelweisen reflex. I, I hope I pronounced that correctly. It's the, uh, and I'm guilty of it just like anybody else, it's this idea that uh, we ignore evidence that contradicts the current paradigm. So uh, it's 1400, everybody thinks that the earth is flat, even though when ships are coming closer to us, we see the, the, the whatever it's called, the top. Or, I don't know, you're, so, the top of you're the ship. so much smarter than I am. The, the, the top of the ship before yes. we see the bottom of the ship, mm, right? Got it. So there's all this evidence, right? Uh, we Galileo had to, had the whole battle with the the church because of his uh, his view that the earth revolves around the sun. And we continue to ignore evidence. So like diet sodas, people drink them, even though all the research has shown that you actually gain more weight when you drink diet sodas. Uh, people talk about Christopher Columbus as if he was a great man. He enslaved local populations and tortured them, and he was a miserable human being. I, there should not be a Columbus Day in the United States. Right. Uh, Mother Teresa, everybody thinks of her as a saint. She was like, it was incredible. She took something like 90%, don't quote me exactly on these numbers, but 90% of the money that came in actually went to the priesthood and not to helping people. I didn't know that one. And so, uh, and we're all guilty of it. We all have these, these biases that we are, we will clearly ignore data that contradicts the current paradigm. Uh, and I think what frustrates me the most is we have worked so hard as a society to get to the 
point of the Enlightenment to uh, to um, allow for science and research to develop this incredible technology and lifestyle that we have, where life is fundamentally better now than it's ever been for anyone, regardless of what social issues we might be dealing with, uh, with police and brutality and minorities and so on. Uh, if you ask just about any minority group, would they rather the world be the way it is today or the way it was 100 years ago? Uh, they would much rather it be the way it is today. And so uh, in the face of all of this, to ignore evidence like on vaccines, like this is crazy. We've debated this. We know it. <laughs> like right. it's, it's time to just stop thinking there's some weird conspiracy theory like we need to move on from these conversations. But, but why do we do that? And I'm guilty of charge on yeah. some of those, right? And as you started off, like you are too. Yeah. Like without a doubt. Why do we choose, I guess, to ignore it? Or is it or is it not even a conscious choice? I, I don't think it's a conscious choice. Uh I think part of the problem is that uh in, in general we acknowledge our sorry. The people who are involved in the conversation are trying to use logic to break down emotion, and that doesn't work, mm. right? So we are not logical creatures. We are emotional beings who uh, then justify our emotions with logic, right? I, I get upset, and I go for some retail therapy, and I'm like, ooh, I need that new suit because I have this event coming up. Do I really need another suit? No, I have four I don't wear in my house. Uh, but it makes me feel good. Right. And so we... We lean to our emotions. We lean to our emotions to make decisions. We lean to our emotions to justify things. And then we use our logic to support that. Um, and we're all guilty of it. Uh, but in those moments, we have to also ask, why do I feel this way? And does this actually make sense from what I know about what, how I should be making decisions? Yeah. Uh, and so we need systems in place to stop us. Well, it's like Eckhart Tolle talks about, right? Be the person having the experience and also be the person observing the person having the experience. Yes. So it's that, like the internal checks and balances, like, oh, am I doing this for the right? Because I think you can always find evidence that supports whatever is in your oh, head, yeah. right? Like, oh, yeah. I, uh, so uh, my, my wife is white and... Um, Congrats. Or, yeah. No, just I wanted you guys to know this. Um, I wanted to feel part of, part the, of, the... Part of the community. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but she sent an email yesterday. It was like, oh, look at this, you know, this taking a knee debate, right? Uh -huh. And um, it was a guy who was a black dude who was just saying like, oh, you know, the flag has nothing to do with it. But, and it just sparked this dialogue. Or, but it, she sent something that supported whatever she subtly believed mm -hmm. about taking a knee not being the right move like during the, the the national anthem and so like i came back just with some this is very softly stated <laughs> like rebuttals um but it, it's just inter <laughs> it's just interesting how you know like where we go with these things and uh -huh. not trying to remain neutral i don't even have a question there but uh, you, you sparked that in me thank you sure um what does the ltb stand for uh tlb tlb sorry. yes uh so i i'm, I'm dyslexic <laughs> so, uh, so I, first of all, have the most common name in New York, I think. I'm John Levy, and New York is a city full of Jewish guys named John Levy. I can literally show up at a uh, at an event and say my name, and there's like a 30% chance there's another John Levy Me on the too. list. Is it ever a surprise? It's, uh, <laughs> I, I, was, I did the, a film shoot, uh, what was it, like 
uh, last week. And, uh, and I was the lead of it. It was really like the first time I've ever acted. And uh, they, they had cast another guy named John Levy as an extra. <laughs> and like the chances, there was like 20 of us in total. And there was another guy with my name. And, and nice. it was nice that like if I failed, he could just step in as, <laughs> as John Levy. No, 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 we need John Levy. Just yeah. use, it, use it up. Uh, so um, I totally lost my job. Uh, oh, the, the TLB. Yeah. So I needed some way to differentiate myself and have my own websites and stuff. So when uh, growing up, I was kind of obsessed with uh, Peter Pan, the story about this. And the, the James, M, James M. Barry's uh, imagery is incredible. He creates this never, never land where like the impossible happens. And uh, he, there's this group of, uh, of his accomplices, of Peter Pan's accomplices, uh, called the Lost Boys, and they live in this life of wonder and adventure. And I was super inspired by it because I figured if I could live this adventurous lifestyle uh, and always be curious, to have this sense of wonder and awe in my life, I would live an incredible life. So I became John Levy, the Lost Boy. Oh, I just, I just sucked back up a tear. <laughs> that's, that's pretty awesome. Um, speaking of your childhood, uh, in your book, you give a very generous dedication to your parents. Yeah. Um, tell me about them and what you exhibit most from growing up with them. Uh, so my parents are what most people would call completely insane. Uh, wonderfully insane. Not like crazy, okay. like uh, in a no, dangerous like way. But yeah, yeah. But like just kind of nutty. Uh, my dad grew up, he was born in 1940 in pre-Israel Palestine. So he was Tel Aviv. Uh, he was one of 12 kids, super, super poor family, um, and managed to become an incredibly prominent painter and sculptor, enough to support four kids through college. And it's uh, my mom's a composer and conductor. Uh, and they're this wonderful, zany couple. Like my dad uh, does this thing where he can bark and it sounds exactly like a dog. He never finished grade school, by the way. Dyslexic and just like... I don't know language. those two things have to... Oh, no, no, they don't have... They don't. <laughs> uh, so he can bark and it sounds exactly like a dog. And he'll be in public at like the nicest restaurants you could imagine. He's guests of somebody. And he'll start to bark. And uh, the entire staff <laughs> starts freaking out and is like looking around on the floor and he'll start looking and uh, and nobody knows what's going on and it's starting to create a panic. Uh, and his like close friends will always ask him to do it. Uh, it's just like this comedic thing he does. And when they're, in, when he's in public, uh, or when my mom's in public and she hears a dog barking, she thinks my dad's nearby. So like, it just gives it's you something a, like super endearing about that. Like, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, and yet kind what, of like, whatever that trigger super, is of connection to, yeah. your, to your spouse. Uh, so, uh, and they're incredible. They now live in an artist colony in Israel. And, uh, but my dad never had the option of being book smart, right? Dyslexic in 1940s Palestine doesn't really, <laughs> like that, that yeah. it, not only did it not exist, you would get beaten for saying that you don't understand something. And, right. Um, so uh, he became very street smart and socially savvy. And far before I ever could have done anything because I'm their child. They were hosting salon type experiences mm. and they'd constantly have people over at the house for dinner. And I grew up in this very like uh, vibrant uh, home where on any given day, like it would either be 
a almost homeless man that my dad met in Paris that he letting stay with us for a few days mm-hmm. to like growing up Elliot Gould, the actor yeah. would sometimes just be crashing in our guest bedroom and, <laughs> and we're still in touch and it's wonderful, but it, it was, there was no like sense in the distinction of status. Right. Uh, and so I grew up in a, a house that's first of all, multi-ethnic. My dad's half Yemenite, half North African. Uh, most likely, I think probably from Morocco or something like that, mm-hmm. Turkey, and half Dutch. Uh, and I grew up in the Yemenite quarter of Tel Aviv during the summers. So oh, wow. I was surrounded by yeah. lots of uh, Yemenite folk. Do you think, because this is a, a fascinating like uh, origin story, mm-hmm. and how you were a little bit socially muted, you know, mm-hmm. in your early year years, do you think those two things are related? Because I, I would imagine, like, if your parents are seemingly the life of the party all yeah. the time, you're like, well, what? <laughs> I, I, it was most pronounced in school where I was, like, chubby and unpopular, and I really liked Star Trek. Uh, and then, you know, my dad was this larger-than-life personality right. that... Uh, that Like, the stereotypical artist, as you can Such imagine. a disappointment you were. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> Um, and my, no, that's awesome, though. My brother is also a lot better. As I have two brothers and a sister. My uh, closest sibling, when I was in high school, was modeling in college. So he, uh, the girls in my grade had photos of him in their lockers. And, wow. And they'd be like, what happened to you? <laughs> All right, while we wind down, speaking of time, mm-hmm. um, briefly explain your tattoo. Oh, so I've, I have two. One is uh, it's a clock that always points to two. And that's because uh, I wrote a book called The 2 a.m. Principle. The basic premise is that nothing good happens after 2 a.m. except the most epic experiences in your life. And what I did was I broke down the science of living an adventurous life to a four-stage process that I call the epic model, where it's established, push boundaries, increase, continue. And Can I tell you uh, something really stupid? I'm sorry? Can I tell you something? Yeah, yeah. When I, I was looking, because there's a little dial-y, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, mechanical thing in the book cover, and when I looked at it, I read it as Pice. <laughs> I read the, <laughs> I read that, the letters a Pice model. Order. I did, now you say epic, I'm like... Oh, uh, of course. So that's really funny. Uh, so yeah, the book's kind of crazy. It starts off with me getting crushed by a bull in Pamplona, uh, which is a true story, and then progresses into more and more insane stories, ranging from battling Kiefer Sutherland in Drunken Jenga to uh, and <laughs> and uh, crashing his family Thanksgiving because he was so drunk he forgot that he invited us. Uh, <laughs> that's amazing. To uh, within 10 seconds of meeting the woman behind the duty-free counter in Stockholm Airport, she quits her job and travels with me and my family for a week to Israel. Wow. Yeah. All planned serendipity. Yeah. Uh, as we wind down, the show is called Innovation Crush. Um, you've seen a lot. You've encountered a lot of people. Mm-hmm. What's out there that you are currently crushing on? Something that gives you goosebumps. It might be in your domain. It might be a robot you saw at the mall. I, you know, I don't know. Um, what am I crushing on? Uh, I, I'm actually really, really excited that, uh, it's becoming really affordable for people to start companies on the side, right? Like the amount that you can get done with an Upwork account, which is like, you can hire virtual assistants and, uh, and using like just the basic free stuff that's out there. I think it's incredible. You could literally start a company as a side hustle, dedicate two hours a night to it, and have something that's profitable in a few months. Yeah. And that 
that's like really exciting because 10, 15 years ago, you needed to spend $10,000 on developers to get like a homepage up. <laughs> that's true. That's so true. And, yeah. and like, and you also didn't know what you were doing. There was no design support, right? Like we have, we're in an age where we can actually really create at, with very little. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, I recently read Trevor Noah's book, Born a Crime. Mm -hmm. And he says, uh, teach a man, you know, people always say, uh, teach a man to fish and he'll give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day, teach a man to fish, he'll uh, eat for a lifetime. And he says, that's actually not true. You also need to give him a fishing rod. Right. And uh, we were kind of at this point where you can actually, the fishing rods are so cheap that most people can get them. Love it. And uh, that's super exciting is the accessibility of it. Last but not least, complete this phrase for me. You ready? Deep breath, breathe this whole conversation in, the, the magic of this encounter. Um, innovation to me is... Uh, a long process that uh, with ups and downs. It's, uh, and hopefully some magic at the end. Um, that sounded very much like an innuendo. But uh, <laughs> but where can people go to find more about you, your work, the book, the uh, whatever so you want people? JohnLevyTLB.com. T like Thomas, L like Lion, B like Boy. Uh, I'm John Levy TLB on all social media channels. So uh, Instagram, Twitter, so on. And then uh, the book is, you know, anywhere books are sold, which is essentially only Amazon at this point. Uh, you can go into Barnes and Nobles. There's probably a few copies of it there. Um but I'm super easy to get a hold of. If somebody has some questions, they can just put in something on the forum on online, and I'm happy to always support your listeners. And thank you. Oh, uh, are you kidding? This was a blast. This was fun. Uh, everyone, this has been another installment of Innovation Crush, and we will talk to you next time. <laughs>